This morning, we're going to start a new series entitled, There is a Light, and we're going to unpack the Christmas story uh, through the month of December up to our Christmas services, and we're going to be looking at the book of Luke all month until we get to our Christmas services, then we're going to John, because we just, that's the way we're going to do it, all right? But we're going to be in Luke, and this morning, we're going to start in Luke chapter 1, and if you need a Bible, just raise your hands. Our ushers would be glad to give you one. If you don't have a Bible of your own, that's yours to keep. But we're going to start in Luke chapter 1 and starting in verse 1. And these first four verses of Luke are very interesting because they give us perspective on what the entire book is all about. As a matter of fact, only in one place in the gospel of Luke does Luke speak in the first person and refers to himself. And he does this three times in the four verses of the first four verses of Luke. So we're going to read them together. Luke chapter 1. Starting in verse 1, when you're there, say, I got it. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Never again in this whole gospel does he refer to us himself as us or me in the entire letter. And the reason he does in the first four verses is plain. He wants to come right out and be crystal clear as to why he is writing this book. He's writing this account, he says in verse four, that you, Theophilus or Tim Dorn, or just put your name in there, that you can have certainty regarding the things that you have been taught. You can have certainty regarding the things you have been taught. He wants you to be certain of everything that you have heard concerning Jesus and the gospel. It's one thing to know about God, and it's another to know him and be certain of what you have been taught. So the idea of the book of Luke is that we, you and I, might have certainty, not just to know about what you've been taught, but for what you know to produce something inside of you, to produce a kind of lockdown, secure, unshakable, solid, stable, immovable faith. Who doesn't want a faith like that? A faith that no matter what your circumstances are, no matter what you're going through, no matter what your life looks like currently, you know in whom you have believed and who you serve, and you are convinced of that fact, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that he died on the cross for your sins so that you might have life. That kind of faith. So who's ready for that faith this morning? That's the, that's, that's the hope throughout this series, is that that kind of faith will rise up in us as we go through the book of Luke. So let's dive in. Let's, look, let's skip down to verse 26 for sake of time, and that's where we're going to pick up this morning. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. And it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at saying, And she tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
he will be great. And he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Right here in the beginning of this text that we just read, you see the most fundamental baseline fact of Christmas. You see, you, you see everything else that Christmas is built upon within the very first few lines of the text that we just read. It starts with God. It comes from God. Right from the beginning, he said, in the sixth month, there was an angel sent from God. Everything about Christmas starts with God. It comes from God. It was initiated by God. The angel was sent from God. That's the very beginning of your basis of what Christmas and Christianity is all about, is it starts with God. It comes from God. Listen, Christmas has no meaning apart from God. It came from him. It started with him. Christmas is about the creator of the universe moving himself in the person of his son, Jesus, into the universe that he made. He creates all that we see and he moves himself in the person of his son, Jesus, into the very universe he made. And what makes that fact even more amazing is that at the time he comes, he breaks in to the universe that he made. He comes at a point in time when mankind is in rebellion against the very creator that created them. They're in rebellion against their maker. And yet he comes into the universe in order to save those who are in active rebellion against him. One of the clearest statements in all the Bible of what Jesus came to do is in 1 Timothy 1.15. Paul is talking to Timothy and he said, this saying is trustworthy and it's deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. He said, listen, this saying is trustworthy. It's true. It deserves full acceptance. Jesus Christ came to save sinners and I'm the worst. I'm the worst. Paul calling himself the worst. So Christmas is about something God initiated, something God did in history, and it has to do with the way that the created universe relates to the one who made it. God had no beginning. He's absolute. No beginning, no ending. He didn't develop. He didn't become. He simply is who he is. This absolute, all-powerful God. As a matter of fact, in Exodus 3.14, that's how he describes himself. He said, I am that I am. In other words, I am all there is. I have no beginning. I have no end. I'm all-powerful. I'm absolute. Christmas 
is about how God, that God, relates to us and how we relate to him. And so what Luke does in this, in this book, in this passage of scripture, is he tells us, number one, how this all-powerful God broke into his creation to save sinners. And then he describes for us who it is that came. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning, the how and the who of Christmas. How did Christmas happen and who came as a result of it? And in answering the who question, my aim will be to answer the so what question at every turn, because we all want to know so what, right? What does this have to do with me? I've heard the Christmas story, but what does it have to do with me? What difference can this make in my life? So first things first, how did the creator of the universe break into his universe? The creator of the universe, God Almighty, God broke into his universe by doing the impossible. By doing the impossible. I've said it before. I believe impossible is where God begins. I was reading the uh, devotion book that we got for our little ones last night and uh, doing the devotion with them, and it was on creation. And so I love how this book kind of explains it and puts it on their level. It was like it, it described God and creating the universe, and it said, you know, we all like to create. Like, how many of you like to make cookies with your mom? And my kids were like, woo! me, you know? I like cookies. I said, you like eating cookies. That's what you do. But mama does all the work. But it talks about how you combine all these ingredients that you have and you get this cookie, chocolate chip cookie, you know, snickerdoodle cookies. I'm making you guys hungry right now, aren't I? You know, all these different things. But you combine these ingredients, you make it. Or how many of you like doing crafts? You have construction paper or glue or all these things and you make a craft, but you start with all these things that you have and create something out of those things. But it said, but God, when he created all that we see, he created it from nothing. He created everything from nothing. He spoke, and it was. And I was just looking at their, their little eyes, and they're like, whoa. You can kind of get a glimpse. The wheels are turning. Man, my God must be a pretty awesome God if he can do the impossible. But that's exactly what he tells Mary. When Mary says, how could this be? I'm a virgin. He said, nothing will be impossible for God. And he even gives her a, a, a little, you know, let me prove this to you. He's like, you know, Elizabeth, your cousin, you, you know how they, they've called her all her life the barren one? She can't have children. She's six months pregnant. Nothing is impossible for God. And as a matter of fact, God has been trying to get humanity ready for this God of the impossible all throughout. From the very beginning, Genesis 18, 14. I'm just going to give you a little sample this morning, okay? Genesis 18, 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Job 42, 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Jeremiah 32, 17. All Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. All throughout the scripture, we're told he's a God of the impossible. And at the time that it was necessary to come for us, for our salvation, he did the impossible. He enters his own creation as a part of it without ever ceasing to be God. He was fully God, yet 
fully man, born of the flesh, born of a virgin. And in Luke 1, 26 through 27, Luke says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin. And the angel says to her in verse 31, You'll conceive in your womb and bear a son. And Mary says, How can this be? Because I'm a virgin, literally, since I have known no man. She's like, Dude, I'm engaged. I'm not married. Joseph and I haven't slept together. How is this possible? But listen, that was God's choice. Because he wanted to show us that the impossible he was about to do in dying for the sins of the world who would accept him as Savior. Every single one of us who have sinned, him dying to pay the price so that we could be free. That's impossible stuff. He said, I'm going to do the impossible by starting with the impossible. I'm going to break into my creation doing the impossible. That was his choice. An angel sent from God to a virgin, breaking into his universe that way. And we shouldn't speculate very far from the text as to why he chose to do it that way, but the clearest answer is in verse 35. He said, the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. God chose to be conceived in the womb of a virgin so that the fatherhood of this child would be absolutely unique. Jesus was the son of God. And at the same time, he came in the most impossible way, entering his creation as a part of it, being born of Mary. And then having this divine father, not a biological human father. He is therefore divine as God's son. And he's as human as he was born in the flesh as Mary's son. He chose to break into the universe this way. And then he chose for himself a legal father. A legal father in the person of, De of Joseph. Who was an heir of David, the king of Israel. And all of that was to fulfill what he'd been doing since the beginning. Showing that God's plan was from the beginning. Luke 1, 26 through 27 says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. For 2,000 years since the days of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, God had been preparing for this moment in history. Promise after promise had pointed to this day where a son would come from the line of David, a king, an heir to the throne. Even at the end of the Bible, at the book of Revelations, chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus waves his banner over all of history with the words, I, Jesus, am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star, a light to the darkness. There is a light. There is hope, and Jesus had been preparing them for this light in the darkness, for hope, for the impossible since the beginning. So Mary asked, how can, how can this be? How can this be? How can this be? This seems impossible. You ever been there? Something in front of you, this seems impossible. In the next verse, verse 35, it must be one of the most important statements ever made. Mary says how, and he says, here's how. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. 
The power of the Most High will overshadow you. The child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. God himself, the Holy Spirit, with impossibility working power, the power of the Most High will take the place of a human father and under the shadow of his wings, his pure, virtuous, holy, unseen, mysteriousness, you will become pregnant with the Son of God. That's how it's going to happen. I'm going to break into the universe I created with the impossible. It's how Christmas started. And so now we turn to the question, who was it that came from this breaking in of God? And what difference can this make to you? Luke 1, 32 and 33 says, the Lord God will give to him, Jesus, the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob and of his kingdom. There will be no end right there. in those two little verses, God tells us exactly who is coming. Did, did you catch three little words that clue you into who's coming? Look, look what he says. Throne, reign, kingdom. Throne, reign, kingdom. He says, the Lord will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will not end. Who's coming? Who's breaking in? The king, the king of the universe. And see, what makes this a little awkward for us, if we're honest, is that we really believe in democracy, not kingdoms, okay? And not just because we're Americans, okay? We believe in keeping the power with us, right? And we, we, don't, we don't necessarily see the benefit of somebody ruling and reigning over us as king, partly because of the examples that we have as kings and rulers have been inadequate, to say the least. And some of them even downright evil and self-serving. And so we have a hard time seeing that. We're like, no, no, no. Democracy is far better because it's in the hands of the people and not, uh, you know, in the hands of the people collectively and not one person. But let me ask you a question. What if there could be a king who was not limited in his wisdom? He was all, all wise, all knowing. Well, what if there could be a king that was not limited in his power? That he was all powerful. Nothing is impossible for him. What if there's a king that was that wise and that powerful, but yet, listen, even though he had that power and he had that wisdom, that there was a king that was unlimited in his goodness and kindness. That there was that kind of king. He was all powerful. He was all wise, but he was so kind, so good. And what if there could be a king that loved his subjects so much that he would give his own life for them? What if there could be a king like that? Who wouldn't sign up to be a part of that kingdom? That's exactly who the prophets described. And that's exactly who burst into this universe at a time that we like to celebrate and we call Christmas. That is the light that brought an amazing, glorious, radiant light into the darkness. That is the king that came. 
See, if, if, if such a ruler could ever rise in this world with no weakness, no folly, no sin, he's all wise, he's all powerful, but yet he's humble, we would never want democracy again. We would want to be ruled and reigned by that person. But the question is not whether the God that broke into the universe is a king. He is. The question is what kind of a king is he and what difference would his kingship make for you and for me? And so there are four words in the text that we read this morning that answer that question. They answer the question, what kind of king is Jesus? And, and what kind of difference would that make if we submitted to his kingship? We're going to see from this text that our joy would be best served by submitting to his kingship. And the first one, the first thing that we see from this text that's right there in your outline is that this king, this king that broke into his own universe by the impossible, this king is holy. He's holy. Luke 135, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and the child to be born will be called holy. You know what holy means? It means pure, good, without defect, deficiency, or blemish. Good, pure, without defect, without deficiency, without blemish. You know, the, the world is full of hope for us today because the king that broke into his own universe, did the impossible. He was a person that was fit to die as the spotless lamb of God that could take away our sin. He was holy. He was perfect. And yet he was fit to rule as a flawless king. Unholy kings create unholy kingdoms, but holy kings create holy kingdoms. They, 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 they create a world of perfect peace and perfect justice. That's why he's called the Prince of Peace. That's who he is. He's holy. He's flawless. He's blameless. That's who broke in. The, the other thing that we see from this text is that this king is the son of God. Luke 1.35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. He'll be called the Son of the Most High God. That means that when God broke into the universe that he created, he was both divine, fully God, yet fully man, born of a virgin, born of the flesh. That, that's what the incarnation means. The king who rules this world. Is not just the king of Israel as the son of David. He's the king of kings and lord of lords as the son of God. You have, as your king, the king of infinite power, ruling, and reign. That's who he is. There is no one like him. No one that can stand beside him. And because of that, he is infinite. And no one can destroy you if you're a part of his kingdom. He's the, he's the son of God, all powerful. You know who else he is? This king is Jesus. He's Jesus. The very name alone, Jesus. He says, behold, you shall conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. It's funny. God chooses the name of his son. You shall call his name Jesus, Yeshua, which literally means salvation. 
Jesus is the king who broke into his own universe, and he did so because he is a savior. The king of the universe is given the name savior, not savior of the righteous, not savior of the do-gooders, not savior of the people who've got it all together who don't need any help. No, savior of the sinners like me. Saviors, savior of the, one, the ones who couldn't do it on their own. Shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The king of the universe is given the name Savior because that is exactly what he has done. Just like Paul told Timothy, he came into this world to save sinners, of which I am the foremost. All his holiness, all his godliness, all his power stand in the service of his saving grace. God broke into his own universe to be a holy, divine, saving king. Saving king. And you know, you, you know what the deal is? All of, all of these characteristics, and we're not done, all of these characteristics mean something for you and me. If, if the king that broke into his own universe, that came as a babe, who lived a sinless life and died on the cross for our sins, if, if he is holy, that means when you submit to his kingdom, what do you have the opportunity to become? Holy. He's selecting a people for himself, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. You have the chance to wear his holiness because you're a part of his kingdom. Because he is the son of God and he's infinite in power. When you become a part of his kingdom, he works not just with you. The, the Bible says he works in you, both to will and to act for his glory and for his purpose and for your good and his unlimited power as the son of God is available for you to live your life. It's benefits of being a part of his kingdom. He comes as the savior. He's the king who broke into his own universe by impossible means. He, he, he's he's the savior. That means that you and I have the opportunity to receive salvation. That all of our sins can be removed, past, present, and future. That means that no one in this room is beyond his reach. None. I heard a story told one time about a lady. She got upset about a pastor saying that, that he removes all your sins, past, present, and future. She said, Pastor, I have a real hard time with this because I believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he removed my past sins. I can even see my present sin. But once I accept Jesus, I shouldn't just go on sinning. I have a problem with you saying he removes my future sins. And, and the pastor said, I absolutely agree with you that we shouldn't go on sinning. We should be changed. But that happens as we turn to him and we become more and more sanctified. Let me, let me just share something with you. At the time that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, all your sins were future sins. Every single one of them. There is no sin that has you captive to the point that Jesus Christ can't redeem you. You're not beyond his reach. That's the benefits of following a king like this. He's King Jesus. And then you know what the last thing he is? 
The last thing we see from this text, and this is exciting. This is, this is a kind of, man, I love Christmas. When you start to dig in to the Christmas story, you start to read this. It's almost like adrenaline for your soul. It, you start to understand that this, this is not just a cute story. This is a reality for my life. This is who he is. The king who broke in to his own universe by impossible means. He is a forever king. He's a king forever. He says he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. The king of Israel, who is also the king of the universe. Listen, he will never be replaced. We're not going to hold elections for a new king of the universe. And as crazy as that would be, even if we, even if we could or did, there wouldn't be anybody who could run against him. There wouldn't be anybody who could touch him. There wouldn't be anybody who could do what he can do. There will never be a successor sitting on the throne of Jesus. His kingdom is forever. And therefore, salvation and his protection are forever. God broke into the universe to be a holy, divine, saving king forever. So that's the answer to who came that Christmas. But before he sat down on the throne of the universe, where he sits now and reigns forever, Jesus died for our sins. So that, as John 3.16 says, and we've all probably memorized it, that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. Whoever submits to his kingship and ceases their rebellion, receives the forgiveness of the king and receives all of who he is. See, th this is the faith that I think Luke wanted Theophilus uh, and, and, and anybody who read this letter to kind of rise up inside of them. He, he wanted the reality of, of what they knew to become such a part of their heart and their life that it, that it excited them. That it, that it gave them joy at the thought of it. And, and so I want to kind of paint that picture. That's why I came off the stage. I want to look you in the eye. I want to I kind of grab your attention this morning. Because when you understand who came, the king that broke into his own universe by impossible means for you and for me, and you submit to that kingship, you, you turn from your rebellion, you follow him as your Lord, your Savior, your Master. All of those things, those characteristics of who he are, uh, who he is, is available to you. His holiness is yours. You can become, by his grace and through his power and with his strength, a holy person. It's what he said he's after. A holy nation. A people belonging to God. All of his infinite power. There's nothing that's impossible for him, right? is available for you to live overcoming Christian lives. That means that when we struggle, when we struggle with a sin that we can't quite grab, you don't have to grab it. He can. You can turn to him and he can break the chains of addiction like that. He can break depression like that. He can turn things around in your life because it's who he is. That's what he's about. He's an indensome God. He's, he's a God who does the impossible. That's where he starts. 
It's where he started the whole thing. I'm going to create everything from nothing. Impossible. But he did it. All of that power is available for you. The God who saves. That means it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter what your family has done. You say, but man, you don't know the family I've come from. I come from a family of thieves or robbers or murderers or whatever. And, and I have a tendency to do all these things as well. And I've made mistakes and I've made a mess of myself. There is nothing that can keep you from his love, from his kindness, from his grace, from his mercy, from his salvation. It's all there for you if you come to his throne. And reigning with him, here's the best part, forever. He's a forever God. He's a forever God. That means that as he lives forever and reigns forever and rules forever, that we get the privilege of living forever, eternal life for those who believe. All of those things are, are available for you as you approach the king. And here's the cool part. Are are you ready for this? Are you ready for this, church? I'm only going to tell you if you're ready for this. Here's, Here's the cool part. There's nothing that's keeping you from coming to the feet of the king. Nothing. In the old days, you couldn't just approach the king. You you couldn't. I mean, if Mike was the king and I was going to approach Mike, I would have to request an audience to be in front of him. And then he would have to put his scepter down and say, you may approach me. You may speak to me. You may come in to my presence. That's why in the book of Esther, she was so fearful of coming to the king. She said, he hadn't called me. He hadn't requested me. But you know that the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who knows no equal, who created the universe by the word of his power, he says, come before my throne boldly boldly why because there's nothing separating you from him there's no dividing wall of hostility the curtain that used to separate man from God was torn from top to bottom not bottom to top to say that man had anything to do with it but top to bottom to say that God has made a way and he says come come boldly before my throne come boldly into the presence of the king and when you do and when you do here's what you receive salvation and life and holiness and power all of that which he came to give you so that your lives might count for his glory it's an awesome king that broke through our history that broke into our world the world he created so that we could have light in our darkness.